Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here, and thank you for everyone for being patient during all the technical difficulties that we had. This was more than, more than we've ever had where there was a happy ending. It really is a miracle if anything works. If you removed all of your expectations, you'd realize, how is anyone capable of doing anything? Before I forget, I want to make a a fundraising appeal. There's someone who is having a bris for a a baby boy. And I, I brought them up before because not so long ago, about a year or so ago, his wife was converting and we needed to raise money to pay for her final conversion. And we were able to raise the money and she converted and now she's had a baby boy. But they need some money for the bris. So if you can donate, that's, that's obviously one of the biggest mitzvahs. And a bris itself, the meal at the bris is called a sudas mitzvah. So that in itself, even if it's going for the food at the bris, that's a tremendous way to give merit to a lot of people. So just go on, on my website, try livingwithgod.org. All right. Not, not, not .com, .org. Yeah. Does that work? Yes. Okay, that one works? Okay. So livingwithgod.org. If you want to do it, please do it right away. And there's a teaching about livelihood because... Livelihood is one of the great struggles that, that everybody has, making a living. The word parnosa, that's sort of like the code word for making a living in Torah. Parnosa is actually two words, par and nace. Par means difficult, as in para. Nace means a miracle. So now, think about that. A livelihood, making money, like just being able to sustain yourself materially in this world is called a difficult miracle. So that raises a big question, which is who is it difficult for? So it's not difficult for God because everything is easy for God. By the way, that's a very big thought because let's just take a moment before we get to the rest of the Parnosa thought here. A lot of times we think of God as a bigger, stronger, better, more powerful version of ourselves. This is not God. God is beyond, 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 right? So when I used to put my kids to bed and we'd say Shema, I would tell them that, that God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. Like everything is within God. And nothing is hard for God. So there's nothing cosmically stopping God from doing anything that he wants to do at any moment. That's important because when you think of God as a larger version of yourself, there's almost like a computer virus in that thought. Because since we are ultimately limited and finite, we sort of project a finite aspect to God or difficulties that God has since we have difficulties in our life. In other words, we don't necessarily mean to project that, but that creeps into this new kind of iteration of what God is to us in our minds. 
And that's completely false because God has no limitations and nothing is hard for God and God can do anything that he wants at any moment. If you want to think of one example in the Torah that, that I think is like a great example of this, by the way. So maybe a lot of you are flashing on the splitting of the Red Sea. I think there's a, a much better example, in a way, in terms of our own lives than that even, which is the Jews are in the desert, and we're talking about approximately two and a half, three million people. It's a lot of people, right? And they basically decide that they all want meat. Now, this is a little bit curious because they had a lot of cattle, but just put that piece of information aside. For whatever reason, they didn't want to use their cattle. And seemingly, they wanted quail. Okay, now, I don't know if God just brought quail or if they specifically wanted quail. I'm not quite sure how quail arrived on the menu. But it seemed like the most outrageous request in the entire world. You've got millions of people in the desert and they want quail, for goodness sakes. And God says to Moshe, is anything hard for me? Do you actually think anything is hard for me? And the next thing you know, flocks and flocks and flocks, enough to feed millions of people start flying overhead and we just lost the connection again. So like a lot of people try to read into life about signs, but like her piece of advice was that like, there are tests that God gives you and then you're supposed to pass those tests. You're supposed to see through it. And so your little point about how this is a test on our patients is appropriate, but it's not like a sign that like God is telling us like, no, he needs to be quiet now. Yeah. yeah, David, I appreciate that. And by the way, I'm back here and we've got a stronger, we've got a stronger Wi-Fi connection. So actually, this just made us stronger, folks. All right. David, let me just address what you're saying and then we're going to get back to this idea of Parnosa and everything like that. Spiritually sensitive people want to be aware of the fact that they're in an ongoing conversation with God and that the circumstances of their life is God talking to them. That, that's, that's true. So then how can you stay in a place where you're, where you're a good listener? Meaning to say that you're not misinterpreting God. Like imagine like how heartbreaking it is if you can't even necessarily understand what someone who you care about and who cares about you is trying to tell you. Like it gets even more complicated when you're trying to have this very often abstract conversation with God and trying to understand what he's trying to tell you with the circumstances of your life. So first of all, just as a basic thing, the Rambam says that if a person's life circumstances are going, as we would say today, south, meaning to say in, an, in the opposite of direction of what they want, that it's, he uses this word, it's almost a shocking word, axorius, which means cruelty, that a person is being cruel to themselves if they're not reevaluating the circumstances of their life, if things are not going according to plan. So that's, that, that's really interesting. Reb Shlomo says something very interesting, which is that whatever you see on Shabbos, it's a good sign. 
Sometimes you see some stuff that's pretty gnarly on Shabbos, and you go, well, what is that going to say for the coming week, or what does that say in general? Whatever happens on Shabbos is a good sign. I'll tell you something interesting. A very, one of my favorite halachas, just because it's so unusual, that's why I like this halacha so much. You're not allowed to fast on Shabbos. It's against Shabbos. You can't do it. One exception. If a person has a bad dream on, on Friday night, and it really is very, like, extremely upsetting. They are allowed to fast on Shabbos because it will give them joy and pleasure to know that they're doing something spiritually positive to counteract the negativity. But that's not why I'm telling you this. The halacha is if you fast on Shabbos, you then have to fast during the week to atone for fasting on Shabbos. Isn't that interesting? You have to fast for having fasted. That's interesting. But anyway, everything is a good sign. Everything is a good sign that you see on Shabbos. Now, with that in mind, I want to tell you a story that means a lot to me. Rav Moshe Feinstein, this is before he gets to America, he's going to become the greatest posek among the Jewish people in that generation. This is going back about 50 years and his halachic determinations were accepted around the world. Tremendous, tremendous genius. And he was in, I believe, Slutsk in, in Europe, and then came to America and settled in the Lower East Side. Anyway, when he was going through the Soviet checkpoint to get out of the country, in his suitcase, now you're talking about basically in his particular realm of Torah, the greatest mind in the world. He had all of his divrei Torah in his suitcase, handwritten. And the Soviet authorities confiscated them and destroyed them. Now, if you are someone at his level, what are you, what are you thinking at that moment? What are you thinking at that moment? I'll tell you something that would be very understandable to think. God doesn't want my Torah. Right? Did that stop him? <laughs> Did that stop him? He, you know, it, it didn't stop him. Let's just put it that way. He went on, and as great as he was at that period of his life, he became greater and greater and greater and greater. And in any standard yeshiva setting or kolel setting in the world today, you have all of his books. So, so there you go. Rabbi Nachman says one of the most important things in the world to know, if someone wants to get closer to God, and this is at any level, by the way, I remember learning this when I was first beginning my, my spiritual journey in seriousness. So, you know, it really spoke to that early stage for me. But Rabbi Nachman says that anyone who wants to come closer to God, do you know what the reaction in heaven is? So if you grew up in America, you think that everyone should throw you a party, right? I want to get closer to God. Like, where's my, <laughs> where's my cake? You know? So... You know what Rabbi Nachman says? You know what they say in heaven? Oh, you want to come closer? Let's see. Let's see. And then they give you a test. 
And that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. And I heard Rip Shlomo say one time about tests. You know, there are different types of tests. And the way Rip Shlomo said it, I always thought this was so striking. He said, do you think everyone, like, you know, when there's a new president, arguably the most prestigious number one post that a president selects for another person is Secretary of State. That means that you are going to be running the entire United States foreign policy and will be absolutely one of the biggest advisors to the president and you're essentially being invited to help make history. Secretary of State is a very, 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 very big position. So Reb Shlomo said, do you think everyone gets called for an interview with the president to be interviewed for, for Secretary of State? Like, think about who you have to be to be, like, I always like this phrase. I think this is like a really cool phrase. To be on the short list. You know what the short list means? When there's like a very premium job and they've got like maybe three, four, five people in mind. That's it. That's called the short list. You know, if you make the short list, you know, a lot of people like in Hollywood, they, they talk about, oh, it's just, it's almost like a cliche. You know, it's just an honor to have been nominated. But, but a lot of people, when they say it, they really mean it, especially if it's a short list. Just to get on the short list is like a big deal. That means that people are taking you in the highest echelons very, very seriously. So that's kind of the idea when it comes to if a person actually is serious and they want to get closer to God, you immediately get on the short list. And now once you're on the short list, it's sort of like, okay, God is actually taking me seriously. God always takes us seriously. But you know, there's levels. There's levels with absolutely everything. There's being taken seriously, and there's being taken more seriously. And I think all of us in our lives want to be taken more seriously. But you know something, when you're taken more seriously, do you know what that means? That means that you have to up your game. That means that whatever you've been doing up until then is now no longer enough. Because that was just enough to get you on the list, but it hasn't gotten you the job. You want to get the job, now you've got to up your game. You want to be taken seriously, you have to prove that you're serious. What is the definition of a serious person? They're regularly upping their game. You know, let me just tell you something. I wrote a book. It's not out yet. It's been a whole kind of windy journey to get it out. And now basically I'm at the starting point again. But that's okay. I'm, I'm at peace with that. That's, that's okay. And actually just writing the book was the hardest thing in the world for me to do. And what I tried to do with this book, and I'll let you know when I've got more information about it, but I couldn't even arrive at a form for the book. It was the hardest thing. Someone who wrote a book about Judaism, she was one of Michelle Obama's top speechwriters. I read an article about it, and she said, it's really hard to write about Judaism, especially an introduction to Judaism, 
And she used this phrase, she said, because every concept in Judaism is hyperlinked. <laughs> Which means that you can't discuss anything without first explaining the thing that you're discussing, but then you have to discuss the introduction to the thing that you're discussing, and then you have to discuss the introduction to the introduction of the thing that you're discussing. Everything is hyperlinked. There is no place to begin when you want to convey a Jewish thought. And so whenever I would start to try to write and explain something about Judaism, I'd then write the introduction to that thought, and then I'd write the introduction to that thought, and then I found that I wasn't saying what I wanted to say. And that was a period on and off of years and years and years and years. I couldn't figure out how to say anything. And then I got invited to start writing these short pieces for the Jewish Journal. That's the Jewish paper here in LA. And they said, 250 words, and if it's a word longer, we don't print it. Here's the topic, go. And after a few years of writing those short pieces, I was like, oh, this is actually a really comfortable way to express myself. Because they basically made it so limited. Rabbi Cardozo has a famous lecture on the difference between Bach and Beethoven. Bach was like compositionally extremely rigorous, extremely rigorous. I don't know much about math and I don't know much about composing music, but I know that there's a lot of math in composing music. And it's really formalized. That's not to say that it doesn't leave tremendous room for incredible inspiration. But it's very tight in terms of the structure of what creates harmony. It's mathematical, literally. And Bach, within those very rigorous parameters, arrived at tremendous inspiration. Whereas Beethoven, everything was, so to speak, kind of freeform. And the idea is living a halachic life living a life that actually has parameters to it. You know, the word chet is very interesting in Torah. Chet, we, we would translate as to sin, although the word sin is very Christian. It's not really a Jewish word. Chet actually means to miss. You miss the mark. Or, the way I heard Rabbi David Aaron put it one time, you either did too much or you did too little. And if you think about hate in that way, think about a time that you did something wrong. It's a very interesting way to wrap your mind around it. At that moment, I either did too much or I did too little. But in either case, I missed the mark. So, the idea of halacha is it really formalizes what the goals are. Because the truth is, is that life is incredibly abstract. And I can do anything at any time, anywhere, with anyone. And it's sort of like, it's, it's almost crippling the amount of choice that we have and the opportunity to actually go astray. And the idea that there is something called halacha, 
which unfortunately is translated as Jewish law. I think that there's a much more beautiful translation for halacha, which is the way. Right? Because holech means to walk. Halacha means the way, the path. The idea that amidst the infinite number of different ways to get from here to there, that there actually is, cosmically, divinely speaking, a way, a path. What to do? Like someone loses a parent. What can I do? I can't bring the parent back to life. I can't fix their broken relationship. But you know what you can do? You can visit them in their home and sit with them. Ah. (laughs) You mean there's something I can do? But I was just overwhelmed a second ago. How can I ever repair their life for this incredible loss? You know what? That's not the halacha. No one is asking you to do that. But you can go and sit with them. Oh, wow. Do do you understand? There is a structure to our lives and there's a structure to this world. One of the beautiful things of having been brought to Torah by Reb Shlomo Karlbach in my own life is that I can tell you he never told anybody to do anything. But that was the way he went about getting you to do it. I heard this from the person who it happened to, and it proves that what I'm saying is correct. He came up to Reb Shlomo and he said, tell me a Torah just for me. All right, so I have never seen this written anywhere. And this person told me what Reb Shlomo said to him. Reb Shlomo said back to him, a lot of people think that I want less from people. He says, the truth is that I want more from people. But the way that he would get you to do more was not by telling you to do anything. Because you know in your own life, if someone tells you to do something, you instantly don't want to do it. And it could be the most pleasurable thing in the world. You know what? Eat chocolate. Oh, you want me to eat chocolate? You know what? Now I'm not going to eat chocolate. (laughs) You can literally tell someone to eat chocolate, and now all of a sudden there's like tension between the two of you because you just told me to do something. But I told you to eat chocolate. You know, would you please lay off? (laughs) Enough with the me eating chocolate. Right? This is the way we're wired. If you're told to do anything, you instantly don't want to do it. And don't you think Reb Shlomo understood that? So he avoided the entire thing. And I know in my own life, when you want to do something, you're going to do it, and you're going to do a much better job of doing it because you want to do it. So as he was in the business of inspiring people to want to do it, and then when you then implemented it, then you were doing it in the strongest way. That's why some of the strongest spiritual Jews in the world were his students. Because he created a situation where they wanted to do it, and now they were like concrete. They were now like iron, because they themselves wanted to do it. So let's just finish this thought from Rabbi Nachman. If a person wants to come closer to Hashem, 
and they're for real, expect a test. Expect a test. And when that test happens, understand that that isn't, God forbid, God rejecting you or not paying attention to you. Here I'm trying to improve myself and now things are like getting more complicated with this test. Clearly God doesn't desire my closeness. The opposite. You are now on the short list and you are now being taken more seriously and you are now being given the opportunity to up your game. That's what it is. That's what it is. All right, now let's get back to the idea of Parnosa. Parnosa is, again, that shorthand in Torah for livelihood, for cash. So what's the, what, what does the word mean? Par and nace. Par means difficult. Nace means a miracle. So Parnosa means a difficult miracle. So now the question is, who's it difficult for? It's not difficult for God. I told you the story about the quail in the desert. Like, you know, if you were to tell me God can split the sea, okay, God can split the sea. Why, why shouldn't he be able to split the sea? But three million people in the middle of nowhere for God to give them like all quail out of nowhere, that all of a sudden they fly in, that's, that really shows that God can absolutely do anything anytime he wants. I mean, God really had to tell Moshe, is anything difficult for me? God had to remind Moshe. So who is it a difficult miracle for? So not God. And now here's the reason why I told you this to begin with. It's not difficult for us. It's impossible for us. <laughs> we couldn't do it if we tried. So now, now it's doubly perplexing. The word parnosa, cash, means a difficult miracle. It's not difficult for God, because nothing is. And it's not difficult for us. It's impossible for us. So who's it difficult for? It's difficult to believe, for us to believe, that God is going to do it. <laughs> That's who it's difficult for. That's who it's difficult for. It's difficult for us to believe that God is going to do it. And of course, we have to put in an effort, right? I remember when I was unemployed one time, I asked, I told Reb Shlomo, and he told me two different things on two different occasions. One time he told me that it's a segula to wash Motzei Shabbos on bread, Malava Malka, that's a segula for Parnosa. It's also a segula for an easy childbirth. I'll tell you the, the logic behind that. It's beautiful, beautiful logic. By the way, that, that segula comes from the Noam Elimelech. And actually, I mean, I've never put these two things together before, but it's also a segula during childbirth to have the, the Noam Elimelech, that safer, under the pillow of the person giving birth. We did that with our children. We had the Noam Elimelech. And... and Ne'ila, the Noam Elimelech is the, Noam is, you know, like the pleasantness. It's kind of like bliss. And his name was Elimelech, Rebbe Elimelech of Lizhensk. So it's like the, the book is like sort of like the bliss of Elimelech, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you want a free translation of the title. But anyway, 
So it's interesting that, that one of the primary segulas for easy childbirth comes from the person who's safer gets under the pillow of the woman giving birth. But I remember Ni'ila Karlbach, I heard her say, Rip Shlomo's wife, that while she was giving birth, Reb Shlomo was piling sfarim under her head. <laughs> and she was just like laughing at how uncomfortable it was. <laughs> so I don't know that, you know, you can leave that to Reb Shlomo to do things like that. I think, you know, you're probably good with just the Noah Melimelech. You know, you could just stick with the classics. But I think under one of our kids' heads, we also put, I think, Emes Vilmuna because my wife is in Aina called the Kutzker Rebbe, so we had one of the Kutzker books. I don't think we had it for all the kids, but... Anyway, so why is it a segula for an easy childbirth to wash after Shabbos? And this is an awesome... This is so classic Rip Shlomo, like... You know, i just tell you an aside before I tell you. I, I, I'm not really crazy about this word I'm about to use because it's got kind of a snobby connotation to it. But I can't think of a better word. So strip away the, the class consciousness of this word. <laughs> Which is everyone really, I would urge everyone really to become a connoisseur in, in Torah consumption. And let me tell you what I mean by connoisseur. Like people who really know something about wine and I'm not in that group, but, but I experienced it one time when I sort of like got it, okay? They can drink a wine and they can tell you from what region of the world it's from. And that, that's not a game. They actually can do it. And the reason why they, they can do it is because if you really are into wine, the, the soil of that region of the world gets into the taste of the grapes, which then gets into the taste of the wine. So like someone told me, like there's this type of wine called Malbec, which is from South America, right? And the person told me it's like really like, the terrain is like really rocky and rich. And then I tasted the wine and I tasted, I could taste the terrain in the wine. I was like, wow, I, I get it. I get how that's done, right? So, so my point is, is that when you really learn Torah, and especially if you're like, like serious about Torah, and you hear Torah said in the name of different tzaddikim and things like that, every tzaddik, every rebbe has a flavor. And when you really like listen to the Torahs and you like taste the Torahs, you can hear a Torah and you can even know who said the Torah without hearing the name of the person who said the Torah, in certain instances. Or at least when you hear the name, you go, oh yeah, of course that person said that Torah, because that's like, you, you taste it. Why, why am I giving you this introduction? Because I want to tell you what Reb Shlomo said about why washing Motzei Shabbos is a segula for, for an easy childbirth, because you can really taste Reb Shlomo in this explanation. That, that's why I'm telling you, it's particularly Reb Shlomo, okay? So he says like this, what does it mean when you make a Malava Malka? And that's of course, 
They call that the fourth meal of Shabbos. Remember, there's only three meals of Shabbos. But there's the, the Feast of King David, and that's called the fourth meal of Shabbos. And the idea is that you're extending Shabbos into the week. So it's very holy. Because when Mashiach comes, it's always going to be Shabbos. Right? One of the names of the Messianic era is Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So it's, Malava Malka is very important because it's sort of like making inroads, like you're bursting Shabbos into the week. So it's, it's very holy. So how does that connect with an easy childbirth? So listen to this. When a baby is inside their mother, it's all Shabbos. Like every moment is Shabbos. And when a mother keeps Malava Malka, meaning to say that she extends Shabbos in the week, the baby says, you know something? This is a woman, this is a person who makes it Shabbos even when it's not Shabbos? To this person I can be born. I have the chills. That awesome? It's awesome. It's awesome. It's an awesome Torah. So the idea in terms of Parnosa, the idea in terms of livelihood, why it's a segula, why it's a blessing to wash Malava Malka, is that you're thanking God so much when you wash for bread. I heard Reb Shlomo say, just like if you eat a few cookies, you make an al That's the after blessing. Look at the al what it says. Like, first you start by saying, thank you for the grain, for the cookie. And then you start praying for the, the base of Mikdash and the land of Israel. It's like, all for a cookie. It's like, this cookie is like this trampoline where all of a sudden you're praying for the redemption of the world because you got a cookie. Like, it's amazing. Now, but imagine now what benching is. Benching is even longer than that. It's about 10 times the length of the, the after blessing for a cookie. And so the idea that after Shabbos, you're looking for an opportunity to thank God. You're creating, you're literally creating, because a lot of times you're not hungry. So you're literally creating an opportunity to praise God and to thank him at length. That creates a vessel which creates an opportunity for blessing to come down and you can hold on to it. That's the logic behind it being a sagula. Okay? And by the way, the Jewish people, one of the names that God gives us is an am sagula. That means that our entire people is this sagula, is this extra blessing for the world. Now I'm going to try to explain this, okay? And I'm going to tell you a very, very deep idea. And I hope, with God's help, that I'm going to be able to express it clearly. And this comes from the Beis Yaakov, who is the second Ishbitzer Rebbe. And he says like this. He's going to explain why reality and why this life is so difficult and so complicated and so confusing. All right, anytime that you're going to get a teaching that's going to address why life is confusing and difficult in an amazing way, you've got to hold on to it with both hands and you don't let go. Yeah. 
So, so basically, I've told you a million times, it's probably the primary message that I've been giving out over the last couple of decades, is that everybody has the same question. If there's a God, why is the world so messed up? This is everybody's question. And the answer is, and this is a Torah answer, the answer is because the world isn't finished yet. Do you understand? Like, if the world were finished, it really would be utterly perplexing and incomprehensible how God could have made a broken world. But if you understand this fundamental truth, and if you understand this, all of a sudden the world makes sense and your life makes sense. That the world isn't finished yet, and that's why we're here in order to be partners with God to finish the world. Then all of a sudden you've got a vision for understanding what is going on in life. Now I'm going to tell you what the Beis Yaakov says in a second, but we have to introduce the thought. Remember, classic, classic Torah, I'm telling you all the time, Reb Shlomo said, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Right? That's just proof that the world wasn't finished yet. And of course, we needed to do two things. Remember, God told us to work and guard the garden. And, and the rabbis explained that all 613 commandments were included in work and guard the garden. Work the garden were the mitzvahs ase, those were the 248 positive mitzvahs. Guard the garden were the 365 lotases, the thou shalt nots. So we had the entire Torah in those two commandments. And what were they specifically for Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve? Don't listen to the snake. Do eat from the tree of life. Right? Yeah. Right? Do eat from the tree of life. Don't listen to the snake. Those were, that's, that would have been the fixing, and then we would have gone in, into Shabbos, and that Shabbos would have been Mashiach. Okay. Now listen to what the Beis Yaakov says. He says that the world wasn't finished. But don't think about it. What, what he's going to do now, he's going to give us a precious gift right now. This thought is a precious gift. Now that we understand that the world wasn't finished, now see it from the eyes of Adam and Chava. See it from your own eyes. In other words, everything around you the reason why everything is sort of like difficult and confusing and incomplete is because the fabric of reality itself that we exist in is about three quarters done, nine tenths done, half done. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the percentage is. One tenth done? Kabbalistically speaking, this realm of Malchus was received one of ten crowns, which means it was one-tenth done. It's not very done. I mean, we've been doing a lot of mitzvahs over the millennia, so it's a lot more done than it was. I don't know if you've ever 
tried to eat something that wasn't completely cooked. But it's, it doesn't taste right. Like, 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 let's say you have like some zucchini. You put the zucchini in the oven and it's not fully cooked. It's like really chewy in the wrong way. Right? So now imagine reality around you, the fabric of reality around you being partially cooked zucchini. And then you say, why is everything so complicated? Because the, the wavelengths, the wavelengths of reality around you were never completely harmonized and finished. I'll tell you something wild. Wagner, not a great fan of the Jewish people, and one of the great inspirations for Hitler, Yamach Shema, would compose these operas. He was like the rock star of Germany, basically, you know? And he would compose these operas that would last for hours and hours and hours. And one of the tricks that he would do meaning to say like one of his bits of creative inspiration, is he would take a certain melodic line and not resolve it for hours. So that people were like crying. They were crying from the tension of this melody not being resolved. And then when he would get to the climax of his opera where the story all came together and paid off and the story resolved, he would resolve melodically that musical stream that he was threading through for hours and he would all of a sudden complete the harmony of it and people would be weeping, weeping from relief. That is very similar to what we are experiencing in terms of human history. There are all these melodies, like you see, like bits of beauty. Like, I don't know if you've, if you haven't seen this, try to just put this on your bucket list. I, I didn't do it on purpose, but it just, God gave me a gift. I went to the Netherlands during tulip season. And, you know, if you visit Amsterdam, you go to a place called Harlem, of all places, right? And that's like a short ride from Amsterdam. And you've got fields and fields of tulips. It's, it's an amazing sight. And, and, you know, because they're so into tulips, they've been into tulips for hundreds of years. They're the experts on tulips. They, they design new tulips in terms of crossbreeds every year. So every single year you can see a new tulip that's never existed before. It's really interesting. But to see acres and acres of tulips in bloom is like, it's really a sight to see. It really is. There's so much beauty in the world. And you see like little bits of beauty, right? But do you think God is so stingy? Do you think God says, you know what? I'll give them some tulips. <laughs> if they can get to Amsterdam over like a four-week period, <laughs> you know, I'll throw in some Ben and Jerry's. 
but not for long. At a certain point, you're going to have to boycott it. <laughs> right? Like, do you, do you really think God is so stingy? You know, one day a year, I'll make it their birthday. They'll, they'll get real excited and, you know. Like, do you really think God is so stingy? So the point is, is that the zucchini is half cooked. I don't know what the percentage is. But when you actually think of reality in the terms of the fabric of reality, and you think that it's still incomplete or knotted up, or whatever it is, because we ate from the tree too soon. If you pluck a fruit from a tree and it's not ripe yet, you know, I don't know if you've seen hard avocados, but you, you can use them to hammer nails into wood. I mean, that's how hard they are. They're literally rocks. We ate the fruit too soon. We picked the fruit too soon. It wasn't ripe yet. And that correlates 100% with reality itself not being ripe yet. That's what the Beis Yaakov says. And so we're living in an unripe reality. And the mitzvahs are the ripening agent. That's what the mitzvahs are, and that's what the mitzvahs do. Because there are all these knots in reality where we can't see further because it's not ripe yet. And what the mitzvahs do is target all of these different points in reality and bring them one step closer to fully ripening and fully opening up and fully being complete. That's what we're doing. That's why life is difficult. That's why life is confusing. Okay, I think, I think we'll just stop there. Can you explain that last thing again? That's why life is confusing. <laughs> That's why life is confusing because... It should be, if, if, I, if I'm trying to communicate something to you, it should be that you should understand what I'm saying. And how can it be that I try to communicate something or you try to communicate something to someone else and they don't understand what you're saying? How could it be that there's this barrier between our hearts, right? or between our minds, whatever it is, or over our ears, or whatever it is, that literally stops two well-intentioned people from understanding each other. How, how does that happen? It's because the world itself is not fully ripe yet. It's not finished yet. The pathways of reality have not fully realized themselves yet. And that creates confusion. And, and suffering even, suffering even. So two things. One, the Jewish people are called an Am Segula. So the idea is that we as a nation are the collective ripening agent for the world. 
That's what it means in Am Segula. Because what is a Segula? It's basically a way to bring blessing to yourself that's not necessarily logical or intuitive. It's a little bit mystical. And remember, when you get into Segulas, if you're into Segulas at all, it's not the Segula that's doing it. God is just opening or telling you, or the Sadiqim are just telling you about a pathway that can be utilized. But make sure that your relationship is 100% with God at the time that you're at, utilizing the Segula and not with the Segula itself. In other words, the loaf of bread that you bite into Saturday night is not going to give you a job, right? God is. But, but this is just an opportunity, a pathway to walk down. So you have to be very, very clear if you get into segulas at all, it's not the segula. It's just a, just a new opening in terms of your relationship with God and be very focused on God. But the idea is that as a nation, as, as the sort of like, as the headquarters of the Torah mitzvahs, we are putting these segulas into the world because ultimately in this, when you see it in this more broad sense, every mitzvah is a segula. Right? So, so in other words, Reb Shlomo once referred to the mitzvahs as divine pathways. So they both would fall into the category, a mitzvah and a segula, they would both fall into the category of a divine pathway. And when you do a mitzvah, you're walking down the divine pathway. That's the idea. That's the idea. So we as a nation are doing that for the whole world. And remember, everyone in the world, we're all God's children. Everyone in the world has a share in the Torah. Everyone in humanity has a share. They have the seven mitzvahs that are universal. So we're all walking down that pathway together. Okay. Now, the, the, second, the second segula that Reb Shlomo said, and he didn't say it as a segula. He said to me, you have to daven for chen. So chen is a very powerful word in Torah. Chen means, basically, I'll, I'll just tell you, Takai Zakhaver says what chen is. Chen is when God's light is shining through your face. It, it's translated in English as grace. Sometimes they'll even translate it as charisma. Right? But it's a certain blessing that your face has that when people look at you, they like you. And so to be able to have chen means that you, you have a special relationship with God. And that special relationship is appearing on your face, basically. And other people see it. They might not know that they see it. It might be just an intuitive thing. But if you daven for chen, you can pray for chen. If you daven for chen, then then because the way Reb Shlomo said it to me was, there's two people up for a job. Why should the employer give it to you and not you? To this person and not this person. He gives it to the person who has chen. So you pray for chen. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.